All right, well, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 12. Uh, you'll have to pardon my voice, so it's a little bit, uh, oh, kind of, has a little kind of <clears throat> raspy sound to it. Uh, maybe you'll like that, but who knows? Yeah. Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 6 is where we'll be today. Actually, uh, <clears throat> when I was pre- initially preparing to preach through Isaiah, I had intended to preach Isaiah 11 to 12 together. They, they really belong as one section. They, this is the natural, the right, the, this is really speaking about the same historical context in the day uh, as, as chapter 11 does. Um, but just because of, of uh, time, I, I felt like I needed to break this up. So uh, it, it, uh, preaching this, uh, this text, it just seems a, a little bit, uh, say, oh, you can, well, when we'll see it, you'll see it's wow, it's very exciting, very uh, exuberant, uh, but there's a, there's a background to it, and hopefully those of you that were here last week will remember uh, the, the great reason why there was such exuberant joy uh, but <clears throat> in this passage, but uh, we'll work through this together anyways. So if, if hopefully you're there, Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. I like to read this passage because it's a pretty short passage for us. Let's hear the word of God, Isaiah 12, 1 to 6. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And in that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Let's pray again. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that as we study this brief text in Isaiah 12, may you encourage our souls. May you cause us to examine our own hearts as we draw near to worship you. We pray that you would confirm that in our own lives that we are true worshipers of you. Father, that you would encourage us if we are perhaps been cold recently or been lukewarm even, that we would renew our, our fervor, our zeal, our, our desire, passion to worship you. For we know, Lord, that that is what we will be doing. We know that, that in, eternity, we will, in, the, in eternity future, we will spend our days offering praise to you. Lord, the days will not be exhausted of all our, the opportunities to give thanks to you. For you are great, and you are our God, and we are your people. So, Lord, we come now and hear from you. Speak to us from your word. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would do a work in each one's heart. Lord, cause us to uh, hear your words. And if there's anyone here who does not yet know Jesus, we pray that even through this text in Isaiah, that they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray these things, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Today's passage, is, as you kind of just we read it, uh, if you could say that it just sounds familiar to you, I think for most of us, we'd say it sounds like a psalm, doesn't it? sounds like something from the Psalms. It sounds like something you would read, like if you re- maybe some of you are reading the Psalms for your devotions. But these, this little brief six verses is basically a, a short psalm of praise. And there are all sorts of different pr- psalms. And this is what sounds, when we read it, it really reads like a, a praise psalm. In fact, it, it, the words in here are very words that we find quite commonly in the Psalms. Uh, first and foremost, it, the fact that it's in poetical form, all of Isaiah, most of Isaiah is, but there's repeated phrases here, there's parallel structures, much like all the, much like the Psalms do. And of course, the theme of this, this chapter focuses on the worship of God. Two phrases in here are the key kind of uh, connecting phrase between the two kind of two parts of this, this about to call it a Psalm already, but this passage, this chapter, is this phrase, I will give thanks. It appears, we see it already in verse 1. And this phrase appears 14 times in the Old Testament and appears 11 of those times in the Psalms. The other parallel passage, which is really the same verb, but it, it's uh, with a different uh, person, is, is a different kind of, is that it says, give thanks to the Lord. We find that in verse 4. And that appears 24 times in the Old Testament, 14 of which are in the Psalms. And so though this passage completely reminds us, and when we read it, it is totally like a praise psalm, a worship psalm. And we could read it like we could read it like it is like that, but it, though technically it isn't, of course, because it's it's not part of the Psalms. But we might classify it and just as some uh, as what we would call a hymn or a song of praise. And I appreciate again the, the hymns that we sung today, the the older hymns that we sung today. Uh, it's such a is. Uh, it is words that are so powerful, so so profoundly true uh, that uh, it put that it's appropriately put to song, and that encourages people in, in, a, in throughout the ages. And so, as we begin our year, I just thought, wow, this is a perfect psalm. This is or, this is a perfect passage for the beginning of the year, because uh, we, as God's people, are first and foremost people who exist to worship God, to bring glory to God. That's that's our desire. I mean, we could say it's to love God. Uh, but to love God is to worship God and, and all that. So our, our desire as Christians is to worship, to glorify God. And this passage encourages us in our worship of God. As we uh, <clears throat> maybe may be familiar, in John chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus there tells the woman at the well that God the Father is seeking true worshipers. He's seeking those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. And... I pray that our study this morning, this, uh, we'll just kind of go through it like a psalm, that it would cause us to examine, first of all, ourselves, and that we, would, that we are first and foremost true worshipers, that we genuinely know the Lord, uh, who worship him, we worship him in spirit and truth. But then, uh, for those of us that are maybe true worshipers, but maybe we've been cold, maybe we've been far away, uh, that this psalm would also just, um, as we reflect upon some of the, the reasons for praise, the, 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 the even... Isaiah's words here that is given to us, that it would encourage us in thinking through and meditating upon God and upon all the things that he's done in our lives and praise him. All right, so uh, <clears throat> that's where we're going to go into today. Contextually, this passage is, as I've already mentioned, related to chapter 11. It's, you cannot really understand this passage. <laughs> I know we're quick to just jump to the application, and that's what I am too. When I kind of read a psalm, it's like, oh, it's, that's, I'm just going to do what the, the psalmist is doing. And we can do that. That's gonna, that is going to be the application. 
But to really understand the passage, what does it mean? You can't understand this passage apart from chapter 11. You have to understand chapter 11. Chapter 11 describes that the future reign of the root of Jesse, right? So this is, chapter 11 is that huge, tremendous passage about the coming of the Messiah. Jesus is coming. Je- oh, well, they didn't know it was Jesus, but we know it's Jesus. Uh, now in light of progressive revelation. But Jesus is going to return, and he's going to establish a kingdom on earth that is going to be characterized by peace, by righteousness, by justice. So this is one of the things we, we all look forward to. In a world of disappointment, of sin, under the curse of sin, a world that is, uh, you know, that is, it's, that is not what God has intended this world to be, we long for the day when Christ, the Messiah, shall come back, and he will make all things new, and he'll make this world a right world. And we're all looking for that. But that's also, that was not just our hope, but it's been the hope of God's people for a long time. In the Old Testament, this was very much true. Uh, the historical context, of course, was the, that in those days, the kings of Judah, particularly King Ahaz, were not very good kings. They not only did not, they not, only <clears throat> did not lead the people in worship of God, but they themselves often lived lives where they did not trust the Lord. They did not know God. Uh, Ahaz, of course, trusted in Assyria versus then God himself. And God offers then hope to his chosen people through the righteous reign of the Messiah. And although the, as part of their, Ahaz's failure to trust in the Lord and the people's failure to trust in the Lord, the result, was, the result of that would, that would be they would be scattered throughout the, uh, around the world. Particularly, they would be scattered by Assyria and then Babylon. But God promised in chapter 11, the latter half of chapter 11, that God would make a way for a remnant, a faithful few of his people to return to the promised land. So chapter 12, and so that was chapter 11, the return, the promise of bringing God's people back as well, the return of the, the coming of the Messiah, and the return of the remnant to the Lamb, even after their destruction by Assyria. So chapter 12 follows right after that. Chapter 12 follows after this promise, this one tremendous promise, and it is a prophetic promise of the worship of God by the faithful remnant in that day, you know? This is going to be, if you could think of this as a song, basically we are getting a glimpse into the number one build, top billboard hit song in the millennial kingdom. This is what this song is going to be. People are going to be singing this song in the future. So, I mean, you, if you're smart, you put this to music right now, and, uh, you know, you can get a, head, get a head start. But this is going to be that song. This is going to be the song that's going to be real popular. We're all going to be singing in church uh, in, in the millennial kingdom, or I don't know, I mean, synagogue, I'm not sure what we'll call it back then, then but we'll all, when we gather together, this is going to be their praise. This is what the people of God will be saying in that day. The passage for us divides uh, pretty straightforwardly into two. There are basically two kind of, if you could almost say they're two songs, but they're, they're really the same theme, so they're one song. Two hymns, each marked by this phrase, you will say on that day, you will say on that day. This is what you will say on that day when the root of Jesse returns and when the remnant is brought back to the land. This is what the people of God will say. So two songs, two hymns of praise and thanksgiving for God's provision of salvation. That's what we're going to look at today. And remember this, <clears throat> my, remember this is first and foremost for the people of the chosen nation of Israel. But as, you, as we look through the psalm, you read through the psalm, you, there's nothing in here 
that you and I won't be saying either. We're all going to be saying these same things as well because they are true. Not only are they true for the people of Israel, but they've been true for us as well. Okay, so let's take a look at the first point, or the first hymn. The first hymn, verses 1 to 2, isn't it we find is an individual hymn of praise. So it's kind of great. It's like, you know how songs go when we have those great rousing songs? It begins with a solo. This is a solo. You know, this is where we get the solo. The solo begins with uh, verses 1 to 2. A solo, if you will, of praise to God. <clears throat> Interestingly, uh, and, and, and we know this because it was very significantly, verses 1 to 2, when we look at the the verb particularly, or the, the subject, you, it's, that's in the singular. You know how you can be in the singular? The you pronoun can be in the plural sometimes. But in verse 1 to 2, you is in the singular, okay? So it's an individual. So then, verse 1 says, then you will say on that day, says verse 1. In the rest of this, ver- uh, verses 1 to 2, the worshiper speaks in the first person singular pronouns. He uses I, me, my. So this is clearly an individual singing or speaking, <laughs> God is describing what a single individual will say of the faithful remnant will be saying on that day. Probably more particularly, God is describing here what each and every individual of the faithful remnant of Israel will be saying on that day. Back in chapter 11, verse 9, we had learned that one characteristic of this future kingdom is that the earth would be full of the knowledge of the Lord. And we, we connected that with the new covenant, right, where God says that no longer we have to teach anyone to know the Lord because everyone's going to know the Lord. And that's going to be what's going to be true of, the, of, the, of that millennial kingdom. Everyone is going to know the Lord. And so everyone will have a personal saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it begins with the remnant of Israel. See, even as we think about worship, and we gather together for worship this morning, and we think of it, I go to worship, and we think of, when we think of worship, we tend to think about worshiping with a lot of, a group of people. But worship, first and foremost, is an individual act. It has to be an individual act. Even as you worship, we worshiped here today uh, in song, I trust that you are an individually, you yourself are personally a worshiper of the Lord. Because if you're not personally worshiping the Lord, if you are not a worshiper of God, even when you come in the midst of a room full of worshipers, it's not going to make you into one. It's not going to be that God's going to accept your worship unless, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> <it's> unless <clears throat> you truly know him as your Savior and Lord. Verse 1a, the latter half of verse 1, shows that a, a true worshiper is one who has an intent to praise, a desire to praise. He says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. I will give thanks to you, O Lord. This is, shows intent, shows desire, shows a, a plan, a purpose of this, of this being. Can we say, I will give thanks to you, O Lord? And that's, that's, the, that's what this, I was going to say, uh, you're going to forgive me if I just say the psalmist at different times. But that's what the worshiper is going to say. This verb is uh, give thanks is one of the primary words for praise in the Old Testament. You kind of think about, I think the most famous Old Testament word for praise is the one we, we speak in English. We say hallelujah, right? Halal, hallelujah, hallelujah, praise the Lord is the phrase. But that's the most familiar one. But this is perhaps the second most familiar. It's really this verb, uh, it's Hebrew, it's yada, but it means to throw or to cast. But uh, in its general kind of meaning. But this word can be translated, it's translated give thanks here, but it's 
also can be translated as praise or confess. The verb actually emphasizes, uh, in contrast to halal, which is just, you know, glorying in, in God or boasting in God. But yada, this give thanks here, emphasizes the recognition and declaration of a fact. That there's something that we recognize, something we know, we've experienced, and we declare it. This, it's being a witness. It's almost being a testimony. And when it comes to, and when this word is applied to God, it means to acknowledge something that we know about God, about his character, about what he's done. And so thus, it's really, it's really more translated praise, but here it's translated give thanks. But that's, the, the reason why they translate give thanks is because when you're recognizing and you're appreciating God for who he is and what he's done, that in itself is how we would define giving thanks. We would say, oh, I give thanks to God. I will give thanks because I appreciate who he is. I appreciate what he's done. And that's why we do. We have thanksgiving. We don't have to say, well, I just give thanks. What do you give thanks for? I'm nothing. I'm just feel thankful. No, that doesn't work. You're going to be thankful for something. You're going to be something that you recognize to be true, either of who God is or what God's done. Now, so we see that the worship of God in this individual hymn of praise, first of all, has an intent to praise. I'm sorry, didn't click that. Intent to praise. Secondly, there's a reason to praise in the latter half of verse 1. For although he says, here's the reason for why I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For although you are angry with me, your anger is turned away. And you comfort me. The worshiper first here un- or primarily understands that the reason why he gives thanks to the Lord is because God's wrath upon him has been turned away. This is, this is, his praise is not because of some physical ailment. This is not because of some, uh, <clears throat> some uh, that he, he's giving thanks to God because he's got a new job. He's not giving thanks to God because I've got food. He's not giving thanks to God because oh, I've got a wonderful spouse and family. He's giving thanks to God because he realizes that God's wrath upon his sin has turned away. That's what he's saying here. Your anger is turned away. And you remember that passage when we studied chapter 9, verse 8 through chapter 10, verse 4, that kind of that message that was, I, I just thought, wow, it was really hard to preach, is that where God, even though he was explaining his discipline of Judah, that he's going to do this, but yet four times, even though he says, I'm going to discipline you this way, but he, each time God says, yet, or Isaiah says of God, yet his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. And we're reminded of that by that repetition of that phrase that God's wrath upon sin, is that even though he might discipline you, it doesn't, even though like say our, your parents might discipline, they say, oh, we, I love you, you know, afterwards. So you, the wrath is turned away. But not so with God's wrath because when we sin against an eternal God, there is an eternal punishment, an eternal judgment that is required. And yes, it is temporarily covered. It, even when you re- repent and come back to God, there is that time. But there, is, there still nece- requires a punishment for that sin before an eternally holy God. <clears throat> but yet, here in this passage, which is so amazing, and this is that in the kingdom of the root of Jesse, it's the, song, the worshiper says, God's wrath is turned away. How is God's wrath turned away? When he, he's just told us four times in chapter 9 and, and 10 that his wrath does not turn away. You and I know that the only way this is possible is because of Jesus Christ. Because Christ came. 
He is the, the roots of Jesse, the one who sits on David's throne, is the one who paid the infinite payment for our sin. He came and he died on the cross and he shed his blood and he gave his life as a payment for our sin. It was on the cross that Christ bore all the fullness of God's wrath that you and I deserve. It's why he cries out in agony, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because at that moment, God turns away from his son so that, our, so that for us, he would turn away from our wrath that we deserve. His anger is turned away. His death paid not only an infinite pain for our sin, but for those of us here who have believed in Jesus Christ, we have this great confidence to know that God has delivered us from his wrath, from his anger. And this deliverance is a means of comfort for Israel's remnant. You know, just imagine, you, you know, if you're married, you know this very well, but actually even as children, you know how this feels. When your parents are upset at you, how does that feel? Imagine if your parents are always upset at you. Or imagine if your spouse, you have an argument with your spouse, and you're always angry at each other. How do you feel just with that kind of human anger constantly going on? I tell you it feels terrible, okay, if, you, if, you, that, if you've never experienced your wife or your spouse or your, ch- your parent be angry at you. Imagine what it would be like if oh, God is eternally angry at you. The one who created us, the one who made us that we would fellowship with him. What a comfort it is then to know that in Christ, his anger is turned away. Because of Christ, his anger is turned away. And that's, and that's why it is such a source of comfort for God's people. That's why the, the worshiper says that he gives thanks to God because, that because of God, God comforts him because of this. Later on in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, that, that key chapter where Isaiah basically turns from uh, judgment, judgment, judgment to basically comfort, 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 uh, is, is a passage that talks about how God will give comfort to his people. Why? Because her iniquity has been removed. Let me read that in chapter 40, verse 1 and 2. The comfort of knowing one's sins are forgiven and no longer under the wrath of God gives worshiper confidence to praise the Lord. And so... This confidence to praise the Lord then, and that, to approach his throne, manifests then in a confession of praise. And we see in verse 2 this, this worshipers, this individual worshiper's confession of praise. And he says this, behold, God is my salvation. And this is the theme of his worship. Behold, God is my salvation. And I hope this is the theme of your worship. Behold, God is my salvation. And I hope that this is the theme of our worship. Behold, God is our salvation that the source of our salvation from the wrath of God, the deliverance from the judgment of sin is in Jesus Christ, and we have come to know him. The the worshiper says, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He begins and ends with a confident assertion that God is his source of salvation. His trust in God is in the God of salvation. He does not have to be afraid any longer of judgment. He does not have to be afraid of God's wrath. The latter, and <clears throat> in fact, the latter half, what's kind of neat is the latter half of this verse uh, is identical to Exodus 15, verse 2, 
And there, you remember Exodus, there Moses and the sons of Israel sing to the Lord following their deliverance from the Egyptians, out of the, uh, their exodus from Egypt. But here, the remnant of Israel are going to sing to the Lord in a similar way, following their deliverance, not from a place, but from their sins. And they're going to praise the Lord because the Lord is their strength, their song, and their salvation. And I hope that he is yours. These first two verses, as we studied in this individual hymn of praise, show us that the worship of God will first and foremost, or <clears throat> will first and foremost experience the salvation of the Lord. Before you can be a worshiper of God, you must know the salvation of God. You can't praise God if you don't acknowledge God. You can't praise God if you don't know God. You can't praise God if you don't trust in God. If he's your strength, you will praise him. If he's your song, then you will sing to him. If he's your salvation, then you will worship him. But if you have no desire to praise, no desire to give thanks to God, then it should give you pause. Because is it possible that you do not know God? Nor do you, have you trusted in God? And that I would invite you to examine what it is that you truly believe about Jesus Christ and that you would turn and trust in him. Well, this individual hymn of praise, this solo, if you will, then leads to a kind of a an, sort of a, an anthem, a, well, I guess a chorus I'm, uh, or a, 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 a what is it? The high thing, a, a height of praise. And it's called the communal, and it leads to like a chorus of praise. And we see the point, too, is that it's going to be a communal. There will be a communal hymn of praise. So after some individuals sing, everyone else is going to join in and sing very similar things. And we know how that's, this is, I look forward to being in part of this choir. It's going to be pretty exciting. It's going to be tremendously going to be encouraging. Verse 3, could be taken with verses 1 to 2. And, but when we, looked at, when we look here at the personal pronoun you in these verses, in particular verse 3, and then and following verse 4 and 5, we'll find that the, the pronoun there is, is now change, changes from singular to plural. So now this is what you all, it's referring to you all. This is the, you, referring to the community now of worshipers. So I, I re, I'd prefer to take verse 3 with verse uh, 4 through 6, and I think that's just how it fits. Now the praise of God that was sung by the individual is shared by others who also know salvation. Verse 3 stands out in this chapter. And I know I've already said that the theme is God is my salvation, or that's the theme of our worship. And that is the theme of our worship. But the main theme of this chapter is here in verse 3. Verses 1 to 2 express what the individual worshiper will say. Verses 4 to 6 is what the corporate the community of worshipers will say on that day. But verse 3, if you'll notice, is not about what people will say. It's not about this is what individuals say or this is what the community is going to say. But rather, this is a promise from God. This is a promise from God to his people. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Now, this is a beautiful picture, and I think uh, uh, whenever you hear churches, uh, I used to always think that, you know, churches, when they kind of choose, you know, those names, 
kind of funny names. Usually biblical ter- terms like rock or, you know, um, air, wind, you know, spirit. Uh, this was a church called, in uh, Seattle, called, one's called Wellspring. I used to never, I said, why do they call it Wellspring? I didn't really understand it. But when I studied this passage uh, this past week, I said, oh, yeah, that's a perfect name, a Wellspring. That's this, uh, that's this, this uh, term that's used here is a wellspring, a, a spring, a, a fountain. Uh, there's a picture here of water, abundant water flowing. Now, you and I, when we think about abundant water flowing, we, we probably just kind of, oh, it's no big deal. Because we have running water, and uh, we, can, we have 7-Eleven and, and, and Safeway nearby. We can always just buy water or Costco in, in the bulk. But in the days of Isaiah, there was not water in such prevalence, wasn't there? there you couldn't just go and, and say, oh, I feel thirsty. I'm going to go get some water. You actually have to travel. You have to make an effort to go get water. And this is Israel. So uh, in, the, in a very, um, in, in a place where there was great temperature, high temperatures, extreme temperatures. And so that wouldn't be water that readily. But the promised land of Canaan was a very unique land in this whole region. You think of the Middle East, you think of basically a lot of, a lot of deserts, dryness, heat. But the land of Canaan was a very special land. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 7, God described this land as a land of brooks of water, of fountains. Actually, that's the same word as springs here. It's fountains and springs flowing forth in valleys and hills. And so to have a spring nearby, to have an abundance of water where one could draw from freely was a source of not only life, it's a source of great joy for the people of God. So verse 3 here, which says, therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. It's a picture that you're going to have water. You're going to have it abundantly. And yet, this is not talking about physical water. This is not talking about springs of, of water. This is springs of salvation. This is a spiritual salvation. The context of, the, of our passage, and particularly in light of um, chapter in 11 and 12, is salvation from sin and wrath. It's, and this is a promise that their spiritual thirst will be satisfied by the spiritual water that the springs of salvation from God are going to provide. We are all probably familiar with Jesus speaking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And he revealed to her that he would give living water. And he said in John 4, 14 this, that whoever drinks of this water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. This will be the experience of Israel when Messiah reigns on earth. That they are going to experience an abundant overflow, a fountain, a wellspring of spiritual blessings from God. All that follows in verses uh, 4 through 6 is a result of their salvation. And they're going to experience all the blessings that they find in Christ. Israel's and what we see that, what we're going to see is that Israel's common salvation, every part, every member of this remnant that's going to be saved that day is going to lead them to a communal hymn of praise because of their common salvation in Christ. In fact, that's why we worship together, don't we? You know, we don't get together with those who don't know Christ. Say, hey, let's worship Christ together. We don't, uh, we don't get together with other religions and say, hey, let's worship Christ. And then today and next week, I'll worship your God. The reason why we gather together is because we all share a common salvation. We all believe in Jesus Christ. And that leads us to offer up praise to God together. 
you know, kind of, there's an odd little kind of um, translation kind of issue here in verse 4 through 6. I just want to point out, particularly if you have the NAS, which I use primarily, is that it seems that <clears throat> what the, the community of worshipers will say, at least in the NAS, seems to be limited, limits itself to only verse 4. But if you have other translations, most of the majority of the English translations, ESV, NIV, New King James, in fact, the, what the worshipers will say in that day includes verses 5 to 6. And I, I think that's, uh, that's, what's, that's the better way to translate this. So um, the NAS translators um, didn't, but oh, that's okay. Their translation is not inspired. But we read then, verses 4 to 6, I'll read it all together, that this is what they will say. This is what the community of worship will say. And in that day you will say, you plural, you, all of you will say, Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. And in this, in this uh, communal hymn, we draw, we're going to draw for ourselves three lessons. Three lessons from this communal hymn. First of all, the common, our common salvation leads to communal worship. Our common salvation leads to communal worship. I kind of mentioned this already. But the redeemed community of Israel is here, if you look at, just take it and understand it in its context, is community, redeemed Israel is exhorting one another. They're not talking primarily to us, to Gentiles. They're not talking to God here. They're addressing one another. They're commanding one another, exhorting one another. They're exhorting one another to worship. That's what they're doing here. They tell one another to give thanks to the Lord, to call on his name, to make known his deeds, to remember that his name is exalted, to praise the Lord in song, and to cry aloud and to shout in joy. Seven commands in this, in, uh, uh, in this text that Israel is going to be shouting to one another, exhorting one another to do. And what motivates them as they exhort one another in worship is what God has done. Verse 5, look at, uh, there tells us what God has done, why they praise the Lord. Praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Great things he has done. Let this be known throughout the earth. See, true worshipers of Christ will recognize what God has done in their lives. That's why we worship, right? We worship, we come here because, not just because, well, I think that's what I have to do, but we worship because we remember what God has done in our lives. God, God's been such a great blessing to us. He's given us so much. He's given us of his son, and he's given us so much more. How we reflect upon not only what God has done, but we reflect upon how we have depended upon him, how we trust the Lord. And we, these worshipers, will, as they reflect upon these truths, will want to make what God has done, what God, how, how God has provided, make it known to others. You know, I wonder sometimes if, uh, and I, I've, I just might do one of these Sundays, Stan, you know, you know, I appreciate you. Give me some feedback. Our worship director, Stan, appreciate your ministry, brother. But one of these days, and we're just going to gather to worship, and there's going to be no preaching of the word. You'll be like, oh, man, blasphemy. No, okay, we're not going to no preaching the word. Instead, what I'm going to do is we're just going to have open mic time. Okay, and for the next hour and a half, we're just going to have a mic. It's going to be, you know, maybe silent, hopefully not. I'm just going to ask you, to, we're just going to go around the room and I'm going to ask, what has God done in your life? What has God done in your life? What is God teaching you? How has God provided for you? 
and I know most of us are afraid of public speaking like myself, like, oh man, I hope it doesn't come to me. But I hope when the mic comes to you that you would have something to say, that there's at least something that you would put down. Okay, you might not be one to say it. So I'm so afraid of public speaking. But if you would be able to write it down and say, this is why I give thanks to the Lord because he has done these excellent things in my life. These are why I come to worship him. These are why I want to give praise. This is why I want to make his name known. This is why I come here and exhort one another and sing with you because I want to share with others what God has done. Sometimes we come together and we, we, just, we just are always receiving. We're all just going to sit here. And, I, and that's the worst. And that's, I don't want you to always come just be receiving. I want you to come and, and tell and give and say, what, what has God done? This is what God's done. And I know we don't give you enough time, so that's why we're going to have to take a service to do it someday. But hopefully we sometimes in, in between services, right before Sunday school class, after Sunday school class, you're talking with one another, um, and you can just simply say, this is what God's done recently in my life. I really had to depend upon the Lord for this or for that this past week. I know that you, many of us will have reasons to give thanks to the Lord. And I know for most of us, it begins with simply recognizing that God has forgiven us. It can, be simply as, it can be as simple as, I really blew it this week. I sinned against my wife. But praise God, Jesus Christ forgives me. Praise God, my wife forgave me. That's what God's doing in my life. Perhaps some of you would say that Christ is working in your marriage, in your relationship with your parents or your children. Christ is doing a work in your workplace, your school, your neighborhood. He's giving you peace and grace in the storm. He's teaching you through his word. He's growing you in your love for your neighbors, for your enemies, for the lost. He's teaching you contentment in, in the midst of discontent and envy and jealousy. All these things God can and does and will do in our lives. So let us give, let's find many reasons to give thanks to him. Let's not be the kind of worshipers that come in here having not given any thought to what God has been doing in our lives. It just kind of wait, kind of just like we need to be prodded in a sense. We should come in here looking to prod others. Look, we come together, let's come into work, think about how we're gonna encourage one another, spur others on. Don't just wait for the pastor to, come on, pastor, spur me to worship. No, come and spur me to worship, brothers and sisters as well. Our second lesson is now, so not only common salvation leads to communal worship, but second lesson we learn from this communal hymn is that common salvation leads to communal witness, communal witness. The Israelites not only exhort one another to worship God, but they also exhort one another to witness to the nations. You kind of see that. You can, can't miss it in this text. When, if you remember, when God made his covenant with Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 12, part of the covenant involved that they would be a blessing to the nations of the earth, to the families of the earth through Abraham's descendants. See, God's plan for Israel was always that they would be a witness on, of, of him on his behalf. And in the millennial kingdom, when Jesus Christ returns, that is exactly what they will do. Verse 4, we read, it says, they exhort one another to make known his deeds, God's deeds, among the peoples. The peoples is a reference to the, to the nations. Make them, make the peoples remember that his name is exalted, that God's name is high. Verse, verse 5 says, let this, all of the God's excellent deeds, 
be known throughout the earth, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Judah and Israel, but throughout the earth. So the good news of the salvation of the Lord must be told to others. The provision of his salvation, the blessings and abundant more uh, that (coughs) comes through the knowledge of Christ must be told. It's a it's a, desire, a natural desire of the worshipers of God because worship overflows into witness. There's a saying by a well-known pastor, John Piper, that missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. And missions exist because worship doesn't. And that's what Piper says, and many of you probably have heard it. It's pretty familiar. It's a very common, one of the best quotes that Piper's ever made. And this is true. Missions exist because worship doesn't. That we exist to witness to others because there are those who do not worship God. We exist to bring glory to God through making disciples. And, when, and we could paraphrase this and simply say that more witnessing leads to more worship. And that's why we witness, because that God would have more worshipers. But these verses here make a somewhat a sort of similar point, but a, you can almost an opposite and similar point. Rather than more witnessing leads to more worship, the point here is more worship leads to more witnessing. More worship leads to more witnessing. See, missions exist where worship exists. Missions exist where worshipers exist. There will be no missions if there are no worshipers, Right? We got, we're the worshipers. We're the one. We desire to seek glory to God's glory, and so we come and praise him, but then when we go out in the world, we want to tell others to praise him. Missions exist where worshipers exist. It ought to be the natural desire of those of us who are worshipers of Christ to tell others of Christ. One of the most powerful, profound truths of when I feel my heart lingering and, and growing cold as, as far as my witness, I can always just go look back to my worship. It's because I don't, I've somehow failed to see the glory of God that's making manifest in my life. And I need to only remind myself again what, who God is and what God's done and worship him. And that will drive me again to, well, he's worthy of worship. I want to tell others. Sometimes we, <laughs> we I know as a younger believer, I used to be driven just by, oh, people are going to hell. People are going to hell. I'm focused upon man. And that goes only so far, but then I'm such a selfish person that in my wickedness and evil, I sometimes don't care. But when I reflect upon who God is, I reflect upon God's character. I remember that God is my God. He is the one I worship. He is my, he is, God is my salvation. His glory is what I seek. I want to tell of his greatness to all the nations. Well, if I do that, and I want to tell the, his greatness here in the, in the, among the congregation, and when I do that, it, the natural incl- response is that, well, then I've got to go and tell others to tell praise the Lord Jesus Christ too because I want his glory to be magnified. Thankfulness, uh, there's a quote, uh, thankfulness and praise overflow as they always must into evangelism. That's, uh, if we find ourselves with little or no desire to witness... Perhaps we should examine our worship. Well, there's one final lesson that we find here in, in this verse, and that's the final lesson this, of our communal hymn of praise, is that our common salvation is centered on Jesus Christ. And that's just, we're just a, affirm that our salvation is centered on Jesus Christ. The last half of verse 6 
gives us the basis of Israel's salvation, worship, and witness. That's what we find here. For great, it says, the worshiper says, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel is a very a common title for God throughout Isaiah. But here with his connection to chapter 11 with the root of Jesse, the, the shoot of the stem of Jesse, we understand then that these two terms are connected together. That the one who is in the midst, the root of Jesse who's in the midst, is also the Holy One of Israel who is in their midst. And so we see a, just a, a testimony to the deity of the root of Jesse, the, the divine character. That the Messiah who will reign in righteousness over his kingdom is not only Jesus Christ, but he is the Son of God. He is God himself. He will reign on the throne of David in Jerusalem. He will be great, and he is, will be the Holy One. He will be the center of Israel's worship and witness. He will be the source of salvation for all who come to him in faith. Not only among Israel, but Gentiles as well in that day. And we know that from our standpoint, that day has not yet come. It's still in the future. But nevertheless, you and I have the great privilege of already experiencing a salvation that is centered upon Christ. We have this, since Christ has come and with the revelation of the New Testament, you and I have this wonderful, great blessing from God that our worship is clearly centered upon Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, that was not clear. There was a, a hope of a Messiah, but they did not really know who that Messiah was. He was coming, and, and they even missed it when he did, did come. But you and I, we have this great privilege. We know our worship. When we worship, we worship in spirit and in truth. We worship in the truth of knowing that the one who is the provision of our salvation is God, but more particularly, it is through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And he is great and he is holy. We know that his death paid the price for our sins. We know that his death appeased the wrath of God. We know that his death enables us who repent and believe to experience forgiveness of sins and eternal life. We know that it's because of our salvation in Christ that we have hope, we have life, not only eternal but, but abundant here as well. And if you have not yet known Jesus Christ, I pray that you would. Pray that today you would, you would come to understand, that you would see even through this prophecy of the praise that will come in the future is because Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ. He will come one day. He will establish his kingdom. He will judge those who do not know him. But his worship, those who do know him, will worship in praise. May you be among them. God offers you salvation and forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that ends this song of praise, this glimpse into that future. And so we, as we begin our year, it's fitting time for us to examine our own worship and our own witness. How are, you, how are you doing in your worship of God? How are you doing in your witness of Jesus Christ? Are you passionate about worshiping Christ? Are you passionate about witnessing of Christ? 
If not, may today's passage serve to encourage you, encourage us. And if you need encouragement, may this passage even cause you to recall that Christ came to seek worshipers. And he came to seek worshipers. He didn't just come and just seek them and, and find them. He sought them by dying for them, by dying for you and me. And he saved you to worship. He saved you to witness. And as we reflect on this passage, may it renew our desire to do those very same things for his glory. For we would say, behold, God is my salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. And I pray, Father, that you would cause us to examine our worship and our witness of you. Lord, we confess to you that there are days and there have been times in our lives where maybe even right now where our worship is not where it ought to be. That maybe we're here and we're just going through the motions. Maybe we're here and maybe we're one's passion, but we feel kind of lukewarm or, or even cold, far away from you. Lord, may the reflection upon who you are, what you have done, the great salvation that comes from the knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ, may it cause us to renew our worship, renew our desire to witness, to tell others of your name and of your glory, that they would join us in that future praise of you. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful to one day redeem Israel. And though, Lord, we are Gentiles, we do pray for that day. We pray that, you would, that all Israel would be saved. We pray that you would redeem all those whom you have chosen among your, your, in, among your chosen nation, that you would bring them about so that you would manifest your faithfulness to your promises given so, so long ago. And though many have forgotten, Lord, we do not forget. And we know that most of all, you do not forget your promises. And as you have showed yourself, and as you will show yourself faithful, we trust, Lord, that you will show yourself faithful to us, that you will bring us to that day of final salvation when you return, and we will worship you, and we will offer you to all the glory, because great things you have done in our lives. But until then, Lord, let us gather each week, let us individually worship you, and during the week because of all the great things that you're doing in our lives today. These things we pray, Father, so that this church might be built up and so that you would be glorified in Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you this week. Uh, heads out on the Sunday school starts at 9.30. Please stay out my left and your right. Oh, one other, just again, no, I know uh, Vincent reminded you already as an announcement, but just a reminder, just start preparing and praying for our move into our 411 Terrible, where the date is set for January 31st. So pray for that. Uh, please pray for us and, and uh, be, be listening for more announcements about that in the days ahead. All right, God bless you. You're dismissed.